Welcome back, everyone, to the Shock Absorber podcast. And uh, it's a special podcast today, not just because Tim is sitting beside me. I'll let the front on camera. It's very exciting. Yeah, yeah welcome. Yeah, <laughs> welcome to you. the front. Uh, not, just, not just a special episode because Stu is here with me as well. Welcome, Stu. Hello. Hello. <laughs> but we, you're not going to do your Pepsi ad today? No, not today. No. Um, so you drinking it. Is it a tea? No, it's just a... This is bad, man. It's like in a White Horse coffee, which is good coffee, but I'm drinking coffee bag. Oh, a bag of coffee. Oh, a bag of coffee. Because coffee I couldn't find any more coffee. Right. So Just saying, I was so surprised cool. last week when you guys were saying like you hadn't seen Wayne's World. And I was, I was like, just me. no way. Like, <laughs> sorry. But that's all right. Thank you for introducing yourself, John. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> this is why it's a special podcast because John is here on the podcast with us and it's fantastic to have you along here with us. You are from... Grace Anglican Church out in southwestern Sydney. Is that correct? That's correct. And you're part of a church plant. That's correct. Right. So how did now? We, it's probably worth figuring out or letting the listeners know and the and the viewers. How did you end up getting connected with us? Was it listening to the Shoggers Orb? Is that right? Yeah. So um, our pastor Gav um, knows Stu. I'm not quite sure where you guys met. Maybe college. college. Probably, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's usually the case with pastors. <laughs> Uh, and uh, when we decided we were going to do our first weekend away last year, um, we were you know, discussing as a leadership team, oh, who might we get to come and do the talks? And uh, Gav had mentioned Stu and said, you know, he's doing some great stuff out here at Soul Revival and things like that. And um, I think that was about, I don't know, it would have been 18 months ago. And, he, and, and I'm a pretty sceptical person sometimes. And I was like, oh, I don't know who this guy is, you know. Uh, <laughs> And Gav said, well, why don't you check out his podcast? They, you know, they talk a lot about what they're on about. And, and so I've been listening since then and, and uh, loving and, you know, really loving hear you guys chat about intergenerational ministry. And uh, we, we weren't able to get Stu for last year for our weekend away. It was a bit late notice. I think you're a busy man with lots on. Mm. Um, so we ended up having Gav just come and uh, do our talks as, uh, I suppose, of, uh, the father of the church family for us, um, which was great. But we were able to get Stu this year. And so Stu came on our weekend away good. last week. And yeah. Um, yeah, that was awesome. What did you do the talks on, Stu? Romans 12. Okay. Which is cool. good. Yeah. yeah, and it was just it used to go away for Saturday Sunday. Yeah, so like as a church, like when we we used to try and do a weekend away as a whole parish, and uh, it was becoming evident that our congreg- you're in three churches, yeah, yeah, we've got three churches, three three congregations, I suppose, in our parish. And uh, it was kind of becoming evident that there wasn't as much connection um, as there had been previously because we had more new people kind of coming to our church who had no previous connection with the other church who we planted out of. And uh, so we were like, oh, after COVID and, you know, no weekends away happened. Well, like, well, let's give it a go. Try to do our own weekend away. And um, last year was our first one. And that was really encouraging. And this year is our second. But again, listening to you guys, really love the way you guys chat about how you started your week, your week away. Mm. And, um, and like, yeah, I think there's a lot of things about that. I think we'd love to integrate and experiment with. I was going to say, are you going to expand it out just not for the weekend? You want to do the whole, the whole well, we do five days, don't we? Yeah, mm. I think we'd love to. I think it'll be a case of we'll have to build that over time. And yeah. it's hard because, yeah, I mean, you guys seem to have had, from what you talk about it, quite a natural progression to that and uh, natural progression to getting people in there. But we've, I think we've often felt the pressure with many, like many events, being a smaller church, that sense of everyone's got to come. You know, and if everyone doesn't come, we can't do it. Um, but I really love that idea. You guys talk about like just saying, oh, a few of us are going to go away. And if, uh, you know, if you guys want to come, mm. cool, come. That's great. And so I love it. And I think we'll be able to build from where we are to that, I think. Hmm. Yeah, mm. that's, that's really Because that's what we, you've talked about it before on the podcast, too, is that I think Week Away started 
as you just like, we're going to go on holidays and people from church can come. Is that right? Because that, that yeah, Lou and I are going on holidays. Anybody want to come? <laughs> and then worked out how many people were coming. So we got a place the size of how many people came, which yeah. was that early youth work site down at the beach down at Jaroa Beach. There used to be a little site down there. Yeah, cool. But it was landlocked and I think they sold it off to pay for another campsite. So. Oh, did they? Yeah, it was good though. Yeah, right. Well, uh, it's very very nice of you to come on the podcast, John, uh, and say that you've enjoyed the podcast. It's <laughs> always nice to hear that. But uh, you've also brought yourself cultural art, brought a cultural artifact, so really showing that you are a, a true listener, just a first-time appearer. Uh, what is the cultural artifact? It's a book, is that correct? Yeah, so I'm a big music person, um, and I think... I think currently my favourite genre of book is probably, um, you know, bio- music biographies. Oh, yeah. Um, and so I'm reading right now the Dire Straits Basis one, um, which is really cool. And just power through those. I love the, the Blur ones. The guys from Blur did some and things like that. But I read Nick Cave's one. I brought the book with me. Yep. Um, this is a, an interview he was doing with this guy, Shane O'Hagan. I think is how you say it. Sean O'Hagan. Um, he's a music journalist. Uh and I've, I've kind of, Nick Cave, I wouldn't say he's been on my radar as being one of my favourite artists, but he's always been around. Um, and I, I saw him once at Homebake, which was really cool. Uh, but I've always found him interesting. He's always had, I've always identified that he's always had sort of an interest in faith and, um, and iconography that has to do with faith and the Christian church and stuff. And I think he's been quite outspoken sometimes about that. He's written, you know, he's, I think he's written even like a commentary of stuff and things like that. And uh, I think what I've gathered in the past is that it seemed to me like he was sort of harvesting, you know, the traditions of faith for stories that he could put into songs. Um, And it always seemed like that's what he was on about. But having read this, it's so interesting, like, um, to think about, he seems to be a lot closer to the mark, I reckon, to understanding the true gospel than maybe what I've given him credit for. Uh, he's had a lot of harrowing stuff going on in his life uh, in the last couple of years. He had one of his, he had two sons die within like two mm. years, kind of oh, thing. Geez. One, you know, fell off a cliff, and I think there was, you know, drugs involved and things like that. So really heavy stuff. And it, he he comments in the book about how the older he's got, the more he's identified the need for for expression of faith and community and that sort of stuff. Um, and so that was really cool seeing that. Two things I think I took away that were like incredibly challenging to think about was one. He speaks about when the interviewer asks him about, oh, have you always been interested in this stuff? Why haven't you spoken about it lots? And he comments that, you know, lots of people just don't want to speak about it. Like he's had the networks he's had, people just have never really wanted to talk about deep faith or religious stuff. It's kind of like a no-no in, I think, the industry he's in. Um, but then the other thing that struck me and kind of challenged me is that he went through a really long period of, of heroin abuse. Um, and even while he was very popular, I think it was only up until like maybe 2006 that he kind of got clean. And there's that question of like, oh man, how would we as a church deal with somebody who is potentially a regular struggling with something like that, that had clearly a, a strong desire to know God but wrestling with something like that, like it just challenged me to go like, what would that look like for us in our church dealing and loving someone like that? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like it, it had a bit, bit of a big impact on you, this book. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I think so. I think I, it really, it was really encouraging and challenging. Hmm. Um, encouraging to see, you know, someone who's making incredible art um, and incredible music. Um, on a world stage who is thinking so deeply about that sort of stuff. I mean, you get your bonos and stuff like that who are talking about, you know, faith often, but, 
you know, Bono can, I think, I, I gather he's a universalist, um, but I could be wrong. Um, but then you don't often get big names like that um, speaking that deeply about that. So that was, yeah, that was cool. Mm. Tim, are you a fan of Nick Cave? I've never really listened to much of his work. Well, no, I mean, I know him as a cultural icon. Mm. Uh, he is, isn't he? Yeah, he's, he's, in the, he's in the ether uh, <laughs> and his music you know, resonates in the ether, but I haven't ever sat down and listened to Nick Cave or seen him mm. play or anything like that. I find that you talked about um, Nick Cave's uh, heroin struggles. I find it fascinating how like, big music stars can still produce like, really great, really impactful work when they're still on quite a large amount of drugs. Like, so I think about um, Jimmy Page, for example, with Led Zeppelin, didn't get into heroin until midway through the Led Zeppelin era. And then you see him later on in, I think it's 1979 at Nebworth, yeah. their last big concert with, as a band. And they, uh, he looked like a skeleton, mm. but he's still playing just as well. So mm-hmm. I find that really quite fascinating that they're able to produce some, their, their work as they do. Yeah, I, think, I, know, I know when I read the Johnny Cash, there's a really good Johnny Cash one. It wasn't his autobiography, but someone wrote it. And it came out just before, I think, the, the movie came out, the Joaquin Phoenix Walk the Line one. Yep. And I remember just thinking, watching the movie, I didn't like the fact that what I learned in the book was he was a man of great faith and he was a really, you know, he was a Christian man. It was really clear. But he still struggled with amphetamines way into... And, and, and the book really captured the fact that he had that struggle. Like he, he personally was weighing up the, hold on, I'm in church on Sunday, but I'm taking amphetamines all week. Like I've got to do something about it. He was, he was conflicted about it. The movie kind of made out as if once he stepped foot in the door of church, he, you know, he was, he was perfect. Mm. And I really loved the fact that in the book there was clear, like, you know, it was a real honest depiction of struggle of somebody who you know was wrestling with their faith and their addiction mm. um and it wasn't shying away from that that's yeah, hard it's a good uh, i suppose representation of how the like the insidiousness insidiousness of sin mm. is that it's it's still always going to be there no mm. matter what right and you know that's again why we can be so thankful for what jesus has done on the cross for us one more question about music buyers what's your favorite one ever that's a great question Oh, I think uh, Alex James is the bassist from Blur. Blur. Yep. Bit of a blur is his first one. He's got two. The second one, he went to cheese farming after that. Second one's pretty good, but the, and it's all about <laughs> cheese that farming. cheese farming. Yeah. <laughs> so he kind of bought a, a farm and, and got into, yeah, like, and apparently it's really good cheese. I don't know. I haven't, I haven't had it. Uh, but well, his music was pretty good cheese. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, well, I, I, like Blur was massive for me. And so he's, he, I think I just really loved that one. I think that was my favourite so far. Yeah, cool. I mean, it makes me think of... Um, Talking about cheese, uh, Jody Schechter, a Formula One driver, now owns like a biodynamic farm and does um, dairy products in that. And I think, he's, I think he's, Jody Schechter, is he? I'm trying to think if he's a being world champion or not. Yeah, he has. He's been world champion once in the 70s. I'll get that year correct at some point. Do you point. think that's him repenting from his massive carbon footprint while he was a <laughs> racing car driver? I have to right the wrong I wouldn't say of going round and round in circles for no reason. See, I think that's a bit of a misnomer about the reckon? carbon footprint about oh. racing. That um, uh, one flight, I believe one flight of a 747 uses more fuel than the entire championship of the Formula 1. Okay, there you go. That puts it in perspective. Yeah. Uh, I could be wrong about that, so we should, we should check that. But anyway, let's move on. Um, I think driving my combi van for a year probably <laughs> is similar. Yeah, similar. <laughs> if, it, if, it, if it gets going. Is it, is it still alive? It's actually going really well. Is it? Yeah, it's oh, not finished. Excellent. So, yeah, we should do an episode in the car, I reckon. Oh, yeah, let's do that. That would be really be fun, fun in the new car. 
Yep, it's a new the new podcast studio for for a while. We'll just it's do a it great in, idea. in the combi. Oh, Will you keep the things see, out of it though that you leave? <laughs> what? It's usually there's quite a few things usually left in the combi. There is, there? yeah, yeah, there is. <laughs> I was um, <laughs> just a quick story. In the nineties, I was at Macca's with a whole heap of boys from Bible study, and there was all these boys that had just become Christians. They're all, you know, like it was like a I don't know, just five or six o'clock on us after Bible study on a Thursday afternoon. And these guys were all in senior high and it was after school and stuff. And we, um, <coughs> excuse me, we were just getting um, McDonald's and the police came over because we all got long hair and, and sunglasses and we're in a combi van. So <laughs> the police decided to search my combi looking for drugs. And they, they opened the door of the combi and all these Macca's wrappers fell out <laughs> on the ground and they're rifling through it. And there's, you know, there's wax from surfing and there's like all this stuff in the car. And the boys all standing around laughing, going, "You're not going to find any drugs in there, officer. <laughs> you might find a Bible, but there's nothing else." Macca's was your drug of choice. Yeah, drug of choice. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, to John, coming on the podcast, um, you said you've been interested in lots of the ideas that we've talked about on here, and and obviously having Stu talk about your weekend away. Uh, what's the what's the biggest thing that you'd like to kind of talk about today? Is it about intergeneration intergenerational mm. ministry, or is it something something kind of different, or yeah, so um, yeah, so like one of the things Stu coming on to church weekend away, um, we're we're a church that I think we're we've got a, a broad range of ages ages in our congregation, but we're still as a parish probably really most aligned with the homogenous unit principle. We have two morning congregations which are generally family friendly. We don't advertise them as family services. Um, but then we have a night church which is very much our our younger population there at night. And so um, that's something we're thinking through and thinking through what's the you know what's the best way to approach this. Because I mean a couple of the, the challenges I suppose we, we're recognizing um, and I mean I, I don't I'm you know I kind of work for the church one day a week but I don't sit with the, the pastoral staff. I, I sit on a leadership team for our congregation. Um, but, you know, we're always chatting big picture about the whole thing. And uh, one of the challenges we're, we're recognising is that we have this kind of strategy which essentially encourages our young people when they hit a certain age to make night church their home. And, and we encourage them to kind of still sort of stay at morning church. But generally, I think we've observed most of the young people end up just at night church. So we have this kind of void in many ways in our congregation where you know there's not many people if any at all between the ages of 16 17 to about i don't know 27 28 um and so you know it's a bit of a hole there Mm -hmm. um then we also have this interesting um thing where our harrington park congregation they sort of started before us and so therefore they're all kind of like almost 10 years ahead of us. So they've got, you know, there's a lot of, you know, uh, you know, lower high, younger high school kids there as well as their parents who are, you know, in their late 40s and early 50s. Uh, and then where our congregation's pretty much all people in their late, thir- uh, you know, mid 30s, early 40s with young kids. And so we dovetail each other really well, but we're separate congregations. Uh, and so I suppose it's just sort of raising questions for us about, you know, how can we really do... Um, intergenerational stuff well mm. and uh and try and kind of plug those holes as as a whole parish together so that yeah we are a full expression of the body of christ mm. um and i've grown up in churches that very much clearly use that homogenous unit principle i remember my last church we had like a young adults group and the, it was always a bit of a joke as 
when do you stop being a young adult? You know, is, do you turn 30 and you're not a young adult anymore? And it kind of, I think in many ways what it did is it, um, it sequestered like people in, you know, almost that like you never grow up, but when you're actually an adult. And, uh, and so I, I think having listened, it's really resonated with me that sense of like, oh, this is, I really love what you're talking about here. And I can see it is a great answer to some of the things I've observed in churches I've been at or churches I'm at. Mm. Like, mm. like, just you saying the uh, not growing up thing is that resonated with me. Like when you have kids, you're like, I don't feel like I'm that old. But then I'm like, when I looked at my dad, I'm like he's old. <laughs> like, so I wonder what my son and, and daughters are doing. Like, look at this old guy. Like, and, but they, I'm like, oh, so, I, when I was a child, I looked up to my dad going, oh, he knows everything. Like, oh, yeah, like everything's, and, but I'm now, right now, I'm just like, I don't know anything. And, but he, he, my son and my daughters are like, oh, you know lots of things. I'm like, mm, that's not really true. It's like, when, yeah, when do we actually grow up? Tim, I was going to ask you a question though. Uh, John was talking about the kind of that drop off or the gap in between uh, generations. And I know you've spoken about that before in terms of just moving up or how, how generations move through the church. What is, maybe it's just worth revisiting that. So wh- what do you think, what do you think are the main reasons for that? Because I know I'll, I'll come to Stu later and talk about homogeneous unit principle as well, but I know that you've spoken about it as well. That, what do you see that, that, that the main cause of that drop off is? Uh, yeah, uh, there's lots of things going on there. Um, in terms of drop off of faith particularly, mm. yeah. So. So we know that um, children from Christian homes uh, that are going to grow up in church, um, half of them will have left church and left faith by the time they hit 25. Um, so that's the, the most current statistic on that in Australia. Um, so has that, gone, has that gone up from 40% to 50, has it's, it? It's 40% by 20. Yep. Uh, and 50% by 25. Gosh, mm-hmm. okay, wow. 50%. Yep. Just in five, five years, difference of five years. Yeah, right. yep, yep. Um, so, yeah, what are, what are the causes there? I mean, that's uh, what a lot of people are trying to work out because you, you see the drop-off from, um, from about 12 years old, the drop-off kind of starts. Um, and so, you know, through high school, you've got this little decline and then it kind of, um, I don't know, never quite peaks. It just, you know, this steady decline down to the mid-20s. Um, and I mean, part of it, I think, is that uh, children, all children, will differentiate from their parents, and you, you, they have to explore who they are. Um, and part of adolescence is working out, well, all the things that are, are true of me because of my family, are they true of me now that I'm becoming more of an individual? Um, and so I think the pressures of adolescence uh, you know, will, all of us will differentiate. Um, and what we want for those in our Christian families is for them as they to differentiate to not differentiate away from faith but to differentiate into their own own faith mm-hmm. um, and so John Westerhoff talks about uh, everyone has to go through those who grew up in Christian homes um, who have an inherited faith have to go through this period of searching faith um, which is typically in teenage and young adult years um, and obviously as Christians our, our hope is that they get to a a stage of owned faith at the end of that where they've they've explored they've differentiated they've thought about it and then they've come to go yeah actually it it is still true of me it's not just true because of my family of origin it is also true of me as an individual um 
and so that's what we're, we're hoping for. But uh, we, we know that that's not the case for everyone, um, that people will differentiate, and part of that differentiation is they'll differentiate away from church and away from faith. Uh, some will come back, but not many, um, and so that's uh, where as well. One of the hunches or that fuels intergenerational ministry uh, is that by overly siloing generations, um, you create these um, little microcosms of faith expression, which you naturally graduate out of without a strong anchor into the next one. So you leave primary school uh, and you have to go to high school. Um, now, in a, in a schooling system, I mean, you have to go. The truancy officer will be on top of you if you don't. <laughs> but if you don't graduate from kids' church to youth group, um, there's no have to go to youth group. Um, and if you tell your parents, oh, I don't really want to go to youth group, um, most, a lot of parents are going to go, oh, okay then, uh, well, I'd love you to, but I don't want to. Oh, okay. Um, and that conversation happens you know, right throughout uh, church life. And, um, and, there's this, and then you go increasingly as you go through teenage years, and then again, youth group to whatever's next, whether it be a young adult group or full inclusion in a service, um, you've got that same kind of drop-off. You've had a youth group may have been specialised and attractive and engaging and held you in faith during your adolescent years. Um, but once you graduate out of that, like if you're now uh, 18, 19, 20, you're not welcome at youth group unless you're a leader. But um, if, if I'm not a leader, like it's not my space anymore. I'm not welcome. I have grown up and graduated out. I need to land and connect into the next thing. Um, and so we have this conveyor belt approach where we've got these specialised ministries from playgroup all the way through to young adulthood and then middle adulthood, which assumes that everyone will be on that travelator and also assumes that they will make it from one travelator step to the next step. Without any issue. Without any issue. Mm -hmm. And so what we see in the data is that that's not actually happening. Okay. So the strong hunch behind intergenerational ministry is um, actually diffusing a little bit the segregation of those age specialist ministries by ensuring that all ages, uh, as well as having peer expression, which is important, uh, they are also integrated into the whole family of faith from really, really early. So that you, you graduate out of youth group, um, but you're not graduating like high school to uni where like you might have two or three friends that travel with you from your high school to your uni or your high school to your TAFE or whatever it is. But you actually, I have, the, I've, I've had this peer expression of faith in youth group, but that was so deeply embedded in the whole church that I actually know people who are 5, 15, 50, 85, 65, people who are singles, married, empty nesters, widowers. Ex like I know all of these people in church. And so the movement from this peer expression to the next peer expression is not as drastic because there's a whole web of people around me who know me, who value me, um, and are still there, were there with me when I was a child, are there with me when I'm a teenager, are there with me when I'm a young adult, um, and are growing up under me and will continue to be there. So uh, that's, that's the strong hunch, and there is some really good data that suggests that that may be the faith. Um, and probably the most significant was Fuller Youth Institute did a report on, they published it called Sticky Faith, and they investigated those in college years, so post high school, who had grown up in church, and the biggest difference they could see between those who stayed in faith after high school and those who left faith after high school 
was those who stayed could identify five or more non-parental adults in their church who knew them by name, cared about them and were discipling them. And so their little catch cry then became, we think about good ratios in youth ministry being you know, one leader to every five kids, that kind of you know, is a good safety ratio. They said, you need to flip that. You need five adults for every kid. And every kid in your youth group needs to know that they have five adults who know them, who are invested in them, um, and who are deeply connected with them and committed to them um, through high school and after that. Um, and that seems to be a really significant protective factor um, of, of teenagers growing up in mm. high school. Uh, sorry, post high school. Mm. Well, I think you've done a very good job of talking about how intergenerational ministry yeah. hopefully mitigates against those kind of drop-offs you talk about. Stu, I was just going to ask you a question. Do you think that, I'm only wondering this, is that perhaps the homogeneous unit principle which was started in order to try and serve younger generations, is that kind of homogeneous unit principle kind of almost cascading down to the younger generations? What do you mean by cascading down? So like if so the homogeneous unit principle origin was for younger people in the church, but I, I believe, and tell me if I'm wrong, but that was uh, still for older adult or younger adults. So does that mean that, that kind of the same kind of principles started coming down to younger age groups? So then that's what's created sometimes the drop-offs that you happen is at each stage of life that they progress to? Yeah, as I understand it, I, I think the popularity of the homogeneous unit principle was an awareness that something needed to change in the 60s because there was such a youth quake in the 60s that there was a whole generation of young people who happened to be the most populous generation ever up until that point. I think Gen Y surpassed that. I'm not sure, Tim. You might know that. But I don't know the number. I think, I think yeah, millennials are a big generation. I'm not sure of the data. Yeah, yeah. And, you, and in our generation, you see the sway of millennials because just the numbers, there's heaps of them. So there's a whole shift in culture because of the millennials. Um, Gen X was a smaller demographic, so, so people were able to just probably not listen to Gen X as much as they're listening to millennials now. I remember when uh, in 2008, after, like when I first went to college, for example, in the 90s, I went to SNBC because I was told by more college that I couldn't go to more college and stay at my church. I had to leave my church. There wasn't a lot of flexibility at the time, which is fine. So I went to SNBC instead. But then in 2008, I remember when the millennials were saying, hey, we'd really like part-time college. There was like this move and a mood for change because there was such a huge demographic that uh -huh. the college was like, okay, we're going to listen to that, I suppose. I don't know if it's a conscious thing. I think it might be just an obvious thing that was important. I think the gen... Did you is, want to say I was going something? to say, isn't that big Gen X? Like, no one gets us, no one listens to oh, us. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> we're the, we're, you know, we're the grunge generation, the alternative, yeah, yeah. you know, we're so not understood. Yeah, plays into that. So, <laughs> so the, <laughs> I, I think it's funny in advertising when they talk about millennials and boomers, it's like we don't even exist. It's like <laughs> they just put us into the category of boomers, I think, sometimes on the TV. But anyway, it <laughs> uh, just makes us even more sad lonely <laughs> anyway uh so yeah come back to what i was saying i think there was such a big shift and there was you know like in 1970 there was still 90 percent of australians plus who identified as christian and that started to fall off a cliff after the 60s that in the 1950s and early 60s Gomer anglican church as we've said before had hundreds of kids in the sunday school churches right across sydney had hundreds of kids in the the Sunday school, you go into some of the suburbs now that where where there's been a big demographic shift, and you see these huge 
churches with massive Sunday school rooms because they used to have some of them used to have up to a thousand kids in their in their Sunday school. It was like a incredible. Uh, but then that dropped off a cliff in the seventies, and so that era came to an end. So. In the face of huge demographic change in the 1960s and 70s, they were looking around for a new approach. And I think that the church growth movement leaned into the homogeneous unit principle of McGavin back in the early 70s because he had a solution that they could implement quickly. And the solution was, yes, there's a generation gap, but let's actually lean into that and let's have a let's take away as many cultural barriers between people and the gospel as we can. So if the old traditional hymns and the prayer book services and, and you know, the old hellfire and brimstone preaching and the suits and ties and dressing up for church and all that sort of stuff, if, if we can re- retain that in the traditional service for the adults, but at the same time start a Sunday evening service that is contemporary with guitars and eventually drums and they, they took a while to come into church, but you know, to start off with it was just playing acoustic guitars in church, it was revolutionary. So, young people loved that. So, then you've got the young people and the older people separated from each other. So then I think I don't think they thought it through long term. Maybe they did, but I haven't found any research yet that suggests that they projected forward what that would look like. But I think there was an assumption that when those kids go to the night church they'll eventually meet up with each other and marry people and eventually they'll have kids and then they'll come back to the morning service. But in the home genius unit principle, those baby boomers were never going to go back to the traditional service and I think they knew that. So that's why they started the contemporary services for families. So now you have three demographics. You've got the traditional, uh, what do they call the war generation, Tim? Uh, The silent generation. Silent generation, yep. So the silent generation have their traditional service. The baby boomers have their homogeneous unit principal service. And when they have kids and they start wanting to go to church in the morning because they can't take kids out to the evening service, they say, well, let's bring the guitars with us to the morning service and let's have a contemporary family service. So now you've got baby boomers with my generation, Gen X, and the baby boomers are going, okay, well, we started the evening service, so now we want you to continue that. And what's, I think, ironic is that the... Baby boomers said, well, we don't want to fellowship with our parents and we're not going to go to the traditional service anymore because we don't like their music. But our kids, you've got to like our music and you've got to like our expression and you're going to continue to go. But even more than that, once you've finished with the evening service, you're going to come back to our contemporary service in the morning, the family service. You'll have kids and then those kids will go to the evening service. So there was this expectation that this was the perfect model of church that's going to suit... um, people in suburban churches particularly forever. So there was an expectation that my generation would do that. But the problem is, as we've already said, as Tim said so articulately, there was an inbuilt transience in that model. So when you leave the morning service and you go to the evening service, you go from primary school to high school, which is a drop-off point. And as Tim said, there is a reg- government regulation you have to go to high school but there's nothing saying you have to go to the evening service Mm. so as well as an arrow going towards the evening service you've got to draw an arrow going out of the church of kids that don't make that step to the evening service and then once you've already moved once you have been taught to be more i think a shadow of that model is you you you're now vibing that well the church is going to provide services for me Mm. they provided one for me as a kid now they're providing one for me as as a teenager and then a young adult 
But the problem is I've, I've disconnected from one service already and you can't put that genie back in the bottle. So once I've disconnected from one service and broke relationship to go to a new church, what I think was an unexpected consequence was competition between churches because the young adults are going to look around at the different churches and go, well, not only do I have to go to the evening service, I might look for another evening service that's got more young people my age in it. And since COVID, statistics are suggesting that we haven't lost uh, a large percentage of teenagers over COVID, but what we have seen is teenagers moving from smaller churches to larger churches. So at the moment, there's a demographic shift of teenagers who have been more individualistic in their choices, having a consumption framework saying, well, I'm going to look for a church for me that's going to suit me. And then the other problem is even if they stay at the church and meet someone and then get married at the church, when they have kids, they might have the same mentality rather than going back to the morning service, they might look around for a church that suits them better. And there's also built into this new attitudes towards, well, I've got to leave my mother and father. I've heard people talking about, well, I should go and start my new life in a new church so I can own my faith. And I can, and I don't know where that came in, but that's another problem that we've got, that people feel like they can only own their own faith when they go to a service away from their parents, which is very baby boomer in its mentality. And I think that goes back to, you know, the whole hippie search of the 60s, which is you've got to go out and find yourself. You don't, that, that's not a Christian idea. Which means that both the, the baby boomers did that to their parents, or they separated yeah. from their parents, yeah. the silent generation. They did. But they also then expect it of their kids. So oh, to do that. Mm. The, the baby boomers, in a sense, have this push um, of their kids to... That's right. You should... It, we expect you to leave our service. That's right. To go and find yourself. So it's a push and a pull. So the parents are pushing them. And you said earlier, if a kid says, I don't want to go to youth group, a lot of baby boomers and then Gen Xs are even worse. Well, oh, I don't want to push you because I was forced to go to Sunday school. I'm not going to force you. Yeah. But if you give a kid a choice not to go to youth group, they're not going to go to youth group. 90% of the time and it's actually a good thing to say well actually you're in our family we go to church you go to school and you go you go to youth group that's part of what we do mm-hmm. but then the Christian schooling movements also eroded that as well because some parents will say well my kid gets all the Christian input all week but the problem with this Christian school is they're only there for six years and then they're out of there so there's another drop-off so you've got to draw an arrow or what when, when you teach people to be transient and they move from silo to silo they're going to move from church to church and even worse, they're going to also go, why am I going to church? I don't even want to go to church. I didn't have to go to youth group. Why do I have to go to church? So then they drop off from, from that and they go up the pub. So I think that's all contributing. Mm. John, what, what's your reaction so far? And then maybe we can maybe workshop some kind of ideas to bring a bit more intergenerational ministry into the things that you were talking about. Yeah, so... It's interesting, I was just thinking as well with that sense of the drop-off and where people drop off. I think one of the things we're experiencing is we actually get a really good transition of kids going from morning service to evening service. And our night church is actually incredibly faithful in their attendance and all that sort of stuff. And so that's really awesome. And they draw a great identity from being there. And I think part of that is because as a teenager... Um, you know, your peers, you connect with really well and you connect with a really wide range of peers. And so you've more than likely, a teenager in our church particularly, sees people they already know at night church. But by the time you kind of get to the age of like 26, 27, your, your peer group's dwindled. And particularly if you start having kids, it dwindles so much because you just don't have the time to maintain that many relationships. Mm. 
and so I think that probably triggers the bigger drop-off point being that when you do kind of graduate back to a morning service because you've got kids and you can't sustain night church anymore. I think that's a question where we've got to ask is that we're doing pretty well with the first transition, but that doesn't mean the model's perfect. It means that we're experiencing the other transition point, the adult returning back. And I suppose one of the things I've been challenged as well thinking through the last year or two is that idea of owning your own faith um, and that sort of stuff, which I I see the value of it. But then also, I mean, having read Carl Truman's book on, you know, the rise and triumph of mother self, that stuff, talking about expressive individualism, and I I question, uh, is that, does that buy into that? Is that idea of I have to be myself and I have to be my own individual person rather than I'm part of a family unit and a church unit. And so therefore it's okay if I kind of just go along for a while. Um, yeah, it's an interesting concept. And I think, yeah, I, I, I suppose I worry myself. And I think we're talking about this on the weekend. I got three young boys, you know, the oldest is eight. I kind of, I, I love the idea that they stay with me in the same church service forever. Yeah. Like, and sure, they might have their own friends there and, and hopefully they do, but just they don't have that kind of, I have to get away from mum and dad, uh, that they can kind of go, no, no, I can express being myself and, and own my faith without having to go somewhere away. Now, if they go somewhere, that's cool. Um, I think there's an irony that's funny there, that idea of people staying home longer. But, mm. you know, in the church, you might move from church earlier but still stay at home longer. That's a really good point. Yeah, it is, yeah. isn't it? That's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And that's drive. actually happening. Yeah, there's people at our church whose kids go to other churches, but they're living at home with their mum and dad. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny, yeah. And, it, and, it's, and I think, I mean, the whole consumerist approach to church is always a challenge that, yeah, I, I think you're right in identifying that, you know, we're training people into that and we're, we're telling them not to. Don't go church shopping or don't just find what's the best for you. But we inbuilt that. Um, and I suppose to transition to kind of what you talked, speaking about with Andy Crouch's work and, and um, the, his culture-making book, um, I suppose there's a question there about, you know, what has enabled that to happen in the first place? And I think you guys might have mentioned before on the podcast, you know, if you go back 200 years, you went to the church that was down the road because you couldn't get to <laughs> church, you know, two towns away. Mm. But because of the invention of, of cars and highways and whatever else, it's quite possible for you to go to a church that is, you know... You know, half an hour in the car, which is actually, you know, 20, 30 k's away, um, where you don't share any other connections with those people other than church. Uh, and that's enabled that. And I know in his book, he talks about the idea of, you know, what cultures have technologies enabled. And so the highway is one. And I was, I was speaking, because I'm a design technology teacher, speaking about my kids the other day, they've all seen the movie Cars. So they totally get that. You know, the highway that bypassed, you know, the village, these, like, what's it called? Lightning Springs, is that what it's yep. called? Yeah. Radio exactly. Springs, Radio Bypassed Springs. Bypassed Route 66. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so therefore that's shaped what's happened. And he talks as well about- I went about, to the town that inspired that. Yeah? yeah, yeah, yeah. What was it like? Like the cartoon. Yeah? yeah? <laughs> did you uh, see Flo's Cafe and- Yeah, they have like cars done up like cars. Yeah. yeah. Oh, did they? Yeah, I went to- fun. In, One of the towns did, yeah. Yeah, but you, sorry to interrupt, but yeah, yeah I, I went on Route 66 last year and it's very obvious. There's this massive expressway and then there's this winding highway that you can go along. It's really mm. cool. 
Yeah, I, I've been to the Disneyland where they've got Radiator Springs. There. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably yeah. not quite the same, but you know, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, uh, yeah. it's more like the movie anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so that idea, and he, he talks about it as well the other one because you just hadn't mentioned this part of his book. Yeah, he talks about the pill and um, the idea that you know the pill had an incredible impact mm. on culture, mm. and uh, and I suppose one of the things as a technology teacher, I'm always encouraging my kids to do is evaluate, you know, evaluate your design, evaluate what's the what could possibly happen? And I suppose there's a question there his book raises is that um, how do we inbuild in our culture building evaluation to try and avoid the worst of, I suppose to use one of your analogies, the shadows that it casts. Like how do we avoid that? Um, and so, you know, we're, I suppose you guys are discussing a lot of the shadows of the you know, homogeneous unit p- mm. principle. Um is there potential shadows to the intergenerational They're ministry wrong. model um, that maybe in 20 years time, somebody else is going to sit down on a podcast and say, mm. oh, those guys who were doing intergenerational ministry, mm. they didn't think about this. <laughs> That's right. That's probably true. Hope they do. Yeah. Well, Tim, you, you obviously, you lecture on intergenerational ministry. Yeah. What do you, what do you think in terms of what um, John was saying? I'll let you know in 2043. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be gone. Chat yeah. GPT can probably tell you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah maybe. Uh, I heard someone, uh, quoting a famous theologian, I can't remember who it was, who before they started a lecture said, all right, well, just so you know, about 20% of what I'm about to say is probably wrong. I just don't know which 20%. And I just thought it was a really humble way of saying, yeah, things change. Like, I mean, I'm I'm giving it my best shot, but I'm not perfect. I'm not infallible. I'm not going to get it right. So keep evaluating and keep, you know, keep taking things back to scripture, keep using the best that we can from um, our observations of the, the world, the creation that God has given us and God's good design um, and to work out. So, yeah, I mean, at this stage in 2023, I'm, I'm thoroughly convinced that the Bible uh, affirms uh, that in, we are inter- designed to be intergenerational disciples. That, that's the phrase I try to use. Um, and from the, my readings of social science, it seems that that is built into God's good design of his world, that we can actually see it even non-Christians when they do psychology and sociology seem to affirm the benefit of uh, difference and the benefit of actually interacting with those who are unlike yourself, um, which is the big sort of meta theme that the homogeneous unit principle... And again, they, uh, McGravin is noticing something true of the world. He is noticing that people like to congregate with those who are most like themselves. And so he notices that, particularly in his mission mission trips uh, in India and the caste system is where he was kind of getting all that from. He brings it back, talks about it at Fuller um, a Seminary uh, and it kind of takes off and people go, well, maybe that's the way to grow the church then is to intentionally uh, focus group our services um, and particularly the church growth movement, the, the Hybels and the, the Willow Creek and the Saddlebacks and those kind of ones were very much, well, let's who we most want to reach and you know in Orange County California it was the burgeoning suburbia so it's like okay well who is the perfect suburban Mm, family they did that didn't they Um, let's design and let's uh, target everything at that perfect suburban family if we happen to have uh, the silent generation turn up yeah that's cool I mean that's fine it's not who we're going for but it's fine Um, if we happen to have other people turn up that's that's all right. but we are specifically targeting the suburban family and so they um, and, and it worked. Like, you had this mega church movement grow because they found that it was true. People did like congregating with those who were like themselves. Mm. Um, what was interesting was, and, and this is going back 15 years or so now, but uh, Saddleback had this survey that went out amongst their parishioners, and what they realised was that they, you know, they get 
10, 12,000 people, 20,000, I don't know what it is, but massive numbers at their church over a weekend, their faith, their discipleship was paper thin. Um, and what they realised that at what they had gained in terms of growth in numbers had been lost in depth of maturity. And they thought, oh, okay, there's, there's one of our big holes is that we haven't actually gone deep. And again, this is one of the um, hypotheses of the intergenerational movement is um, it may end up being slow in terms of growth in numbers, but if God has designed us to be intergenerational disciples, uh, then we would expect to have deeper, longer-lasting faith out of that. Um, but also you don't want necessarily slow growth either. Like you want good mission. So it's, it's trying to work out how do you do all those things. One of the things we've tried to experiment with the church is to work out how to express that uh, being intergenerational in itself has its own missional power um, because you can turn up no matter what age or stage of life you are and you will find that this is a church where you can belong. Um, it's going to be a little bit harder than turning up just somewhere where everyone is just like you. Um, but you know, with that depth of relationship that's necessary to dig into that relationship, you actually grow well. Um, yeah, so I think off the back of that, teaching Christians to be resilient again because they're not very resilient if they're individualistic consumers because if they have an argument with someone or the music isn't to their liking, they're like, oh, I might go somewhere else. But there's no unicorn church. So everywhere you go <coughs> looking for that <coughs> excuse me, perfect element, you're going to have other things that you don't like. And so you spend your life transitioning from one church to another. And in a place like the Solon Shire that has a lot of churches, the c- Christian community can be a bit like a herd of wildebeest that is going around to the latest next church or whatever um, that comes up with a new idea. And I think Bonhoeffer, I like, I like Bonhoeffer's thoughts about costly discipleship, teaching people to carry their cross and actually come to church to serve. So changing that narrative, no, this isn't here for you to help you to grow. Because if everybody in the church comes for themselves to be ministered to, no one's going to minister to anybody. But that's what can happen. Someone comes to a new church to test it, to see how welcoming it is. And people talk about, oh, that church wasn't very friendly. No one came and talked to me. But they don't add that, yeah, I sat by myself in the corner and I didn't go and talk to anybody either. But if I was to go down to Shark Park and sit in the corner and not talk to anyone, no one would come and talk to me. It would be very unlikely. So if I want to make friends at Shark Park, I'll go and talk to someone. But Christians aren't very resilient now because we're waiting for the church to prove to us that they've got a ministry worth investing in and so there's a bit of that but i also think coming back to that question about the shadows andy crouch is really clever because he says that in american culture which i think australia has abided fairly strongly there's this sense that change is progress but he says not all change is good and so he talks about the fact that the motorway creates possibilities but also impossibilities so the new possibility is that you can travel between cities quicker and you can bypass all these tiny little towns, but it's actually impossible to ride a horse on those roads. So now we might think about that and go, well, I don't want to ride a horse on those roads. <laughs> but there's something that our culture lost as the motor car developed the highway because horses couldn't be the mode of transport anymore. And that's just a symbol of things too. Like for us as churches... If we have an evening service for young people and a morning service for the families, it can become impossible for those two groups of people to get to know each other. And that means it can be impossible for young people to grow up learning what it's like to put themselves out and sit in a boring conversation with an old person. Because I remember being bored stiff in church 
for a long time, just sitting there going, I don't even know what this is on about. But I got used to being bored. But in our culture, kids don't like being bored yeah. and it's the worst thing ever. So we give them the iPads and I'm just as guilty as this as the next person, but they're in church on their iPads and stuff. And so as a result, if church gets boring, I go. And I actually wonder if most people leave church because it's boring. Oh, really? That's what I think people leave for, or it's not cool enough. Mm. And so they're looking for something cooler, more exciting. But wouldn't it be great if we just dug in with each other and go, well, let's make this exciting. That's like weird. if we don't, and that's where Crouch is great, because he says, rather than just responding to culture, why don't we create culture? But how do you create culture if people aren't committed to their local church? So something like Tim was saying, you can teach people to be committed to something that they don't actually like very much some of the time. Mm-hmm. You mentioned I was thinking of when you were saying earlier, John, about the um, things you might, what are the hidden costs of different technologies? And I think about the microwave. So the microwave helps us to really quickly reheat food. There are certain things you can cook in the microwave. Um, it's, it's quick, it's easy, it's efficient. Um, one of the things it did culturally was it uh, stopped families having to all be home at dinner time. So mm. it allowed for a dislocation of family because I didn't need to be home mm. when dinner was ready and dinner was hot out of the oven because if I'm half an hour late from work, I just zap it in the microwave and I eat by myself. And yeah, you get mm. teenage kids and they've all got different extracurricular activities and they all come home at all hours of the afternoon and evening. They just zap their own portion and no one has to eat together now. Um, and then the other thing I was thinking of was uh, sometimes, uh, like there's definitely conveniences to a microwave, what you can't do in a microwave is cook you know, a beef brisket that needs 16 hours in a slow cooker. Um, and sometimes the, the beef brisket that needs 16 hours um, is actually a far better product, a far better consumption, a yeah, far better good. meal than what you can do. But it in costs the more to get it. It costs more, yeah, and right. it takes a lot that's longer. Clever. Wow, what yeah. an analogy! It's so good. I love that. Intergenerational church um, is is the beef brisket. <laughs> <laughs> the beef brisket <laughs> yeah. of church. Uh, uh, yeah, Wobble. I got a mate Dan who is like super into his his smoked meat, yeah, and he yeah. does it incredibly. And my other mate Dean's picked up a lot from him. Does really well too. He'll love that. He'll yeah. love that beef brisket. Is yeah, yeah intergenerational. So the homogeneous principle. It was the microwave. Yeah, it was yeah, quick. It, it was efficient, yeah. and it grew. Really, very good. Really fast. That was very clear. Um, but uh, for all of those benefits, we've we've dislocated families uh, because they don't have to be together because we've created our own individualism, um, and and we've lost the beauty of sitting around for an entire day together, uh, waiting, mouth watering for the beef brisket to be ready. You put on at three a.m. Um, and you have them for dinner. Yeah. I love that. Uh, which leads, I think, cool. I mean, one of the things, as particularly as a technology teacher, and I, I do a day a week at the moment, starting this year, doing graphic design communication stuff for church. And I suppose that thinking about that at a very a, a small level in terms of what we do at church and with technologies themselves and how technologies influence our interactions at church and our communities um, and thinking about, well, not just bigger picture what culture we're creating in terms of intergenerationally, but what like smaller cultures in our churches do we create with the technologies we use? So I know I have a current conversation with our, our, our rector, Jono, who's just a champion, about um, QR codes. And uh, I label them digital graffiti because, you know, I've seen it everywhere. Churches do this and they put a QR code for every possible thing that you might sign up for. You know, sign up for Kids Club with this QR code, sign up for 
youth group with this one and you end up with like a page full of 20 QR codes. Um, and we, I mean, we use them sparingly. We try to use them sparingly. And one of the things I'm always chatting about with Gav, who's our pastor, is that when we have like a connect and care card, often what we're, we're doing sometimes is we're saying, walk into the doors of our church, put your head in your phone and take a photo of this code and then tell us about what you're doing and what we can pray for in your phone. Uh, and I love the idea of instead of like doing that, I mean, have that as a backup because we want to love people well, but reminding people, no, 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 come and talk to us. Come and, come and pray with us. Let, let us know. If, if you can't do that or if you want to make sure you don't go to the cracks, use the code. It's there, you know, because those things shape like how we meet and, and yeah, and how we interact. And even more, empowering everyone in the community to be having deep conversations with each other while they're at church gathering, mm. which means, you know, everyone who walks through should be having a real and vulnerable conversation and saying, like, genuinely, how are you going? Mm. Oh, actually, this week. And so you, you have an incarnate, you know, you're able to tell us another person exactly what you would have typed into your phone, but actually doing it relationally. Um, and those that need to be triaged up the chain to, you know, pastoral teams and staff teams, whatever, can be done that. But if, if the whole church is equipped to be having those conversations with each other, mm. um, then people should be looking after. Like Stu said before, like if everyone comes to serve, then I walk in the door and there's 100 people, there's 50 people, whatever the congregation size is, who are all thinking, how can we serve you today? Um, Right. And it's, it's super hard when you're young, you're young kids. Like I know, like you know, to actually have a conversation. I know, talking to our friends who are in the same boat, they're like, I don't think I've had a conversation with someone in six months <laughs> because you know, church after church is get there, get the kids morning tea. Which I mean, just brings back that idea of if you've got a whole bunch of grandparents in the church, then you've got kind of almost inbuilt babysitting in many ways to to love your family by helping you with the kids. I was struck on the weekend. Um, when you were talking, Stu, about the, the body of Christ metaphor, which I love that metaphor so much. Like I use it in so many ways, talking about, you know, like leadership structures at, at work, at school and, and other things. But maybe I've been shaped in my thinking by the homogenous unit principle that I think the way I'd often thought about that is it's just to do with gifting, like different giftings in the church. And so I think I, in my mind, potentially, I, I thought it was possible you could have the full expression of the body in uh, you know a young adult church because you had you know people who are gifted preachers or people who are gifted musicians or but I think it struck me on the weekend differently when you're like well actually think about it more different ages are like different parts of the body as well yeah. as well because yeah. in the text that yeah. he's talking about gifts That's so right. you're right to do that but, but I think yeah. I think that was a real struck struck me really well in that sense of like yeah like to have the full body there, you need full ages. And one takeaway I was chatting to my wife Beth about on the weekend is often when I used to do, when I was doing youth ministry stuff um, and we'd take our kids to a conference like kick or kickstart, we used to call it back in the day. Um, we'd always talk to the kids about you're up on the mountain and you know, you're going to have this great experience at this conference and you're going to be up on a high, but we're going to go back down to the valley and you've got to get used to the fact that in three weeks' time, all those resolutions you made might disappear. One of the beauties of our weekend away, and I think any weekend away, is you're there with your kids. They keep you in the valley because <laughs> you've still got to change nappies. You've still got to force them to eat their dinner and get them to sleep when they're ridiculously tired. And so th there's almost like this beautiful inbuilt um, you know, um, tethering so that you don't end up in this great cloud of like, oh, these beautiful ideas we'll never use. Yeah. You're, yeah. you're still in the valley with see, your kids. See, that's a really good point because people are in nuclear families and they're trying really hard to do everything in their nuclear family, bring up their kids and do everything, which is good. Plus there's this pressure from society to have your kids do heaps of activities. 
So we mentioned last weekend that some families are going to sport training two nights a week, then spending the whole day on Saturday at sport training. By the time they get to church, they just want to do an hour and then go home. And I think imagine if the church actually expected that from everyone, like sporting clubs do. Well, you have to come to training twice a week. You have to be on ground control once a month and you have to be uh, at two games and you know drive between suburbs your kids all over the place you're just like a taxi driver or an uber driver in that uh we wouldn't do that in church we'd we'd say no that's expecting too much but in the world some people don't just go to one sporting club they have dancing as well and then a music lesson and then they're getting tutoring so parents are spending their whole week driving their kids around to all these different things trying to fit dinner in and stuff like that and we talked last week about the slow food movement in italy which was a repudiation of the microwave really it's like let's get back to brixit brick what do you call them it's beef, brixit. beef brisket 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 beef brisket? Brisket? Yeah, brisket. i've got thoughts on that too we could come back to that another episode <laughs> but, but gauging from last week's conversation between me and tim we may have different views on brexit but anyway we I could talk oh there you are we do have a different view then because you don't have a view, <laughs> I've got no view. yeah I, I don't know what my view is actually still, still i'm view. still exploring but that was a tangent you can um Coming back to the slow food movement, people are like, I don't want to rush around eating out of a microwave. I want to make my own pasta. But if you're going to do that, one of my very good friends, who's a principal of Shire Christian School, Dave Stone Street, he taught me years ago when we were young to get young adults. He said, if you choose to do one thing, you're choosing not to do something else. Mm. And that was such helpful advice to me because when I had kids, I'm like, well, if you choose to do one sport, a year that would be a good thing that's enough just do one a year if you want to change codes next year just do a different code and we even went to the extent of saying let's just do a winter sport or a summer sport and that slowed our family down and gave us heaps of time for church because we made a conscious decision that if we were going to do all these things which were good decisions to do but it just mean you know and then you add on top of that when kids turn 12 they they're working at maccas now almost so parents are like wanting to teach them how to learn good skills for living and learn how to deal with money but in some regards families that can afford don't don't need them to go out to work um just teaching the kids to be little consumers and spending heaps more money on themselves sometimes so but they're they're using that as an excuse not to go to church as well now because i've got a shift on sunday and things like that so there's this craziness to our society that we have to think like andrew crouch is encouraging us to we're on a highway but maybe it'd be good to go back to horse and cart I'm not literally meaning that, but that's just a symbol of maybe there are some old things that are good. So one thing my family decided to do was instead of have a nuclear family, we invited my mum and dad to live with us. So we have them in one part of the house and we have a different part of the house. Now, that just multiplies the amount of care my, my two sons had. So they've got their grandparents to talk to when they have a fight with me. They've got their grandparents' fridge to raid when they... They, there's not any food in my fridge when my dad uh looked at that situation uh he 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 knew this subconsciously so later on i learned it through hearing people talk about it but apparently boys who are teenagers talk best in small amounts of time and sitting side by side not by looking at each other and moving so my dad thinks to himself okay He's just picked that up from boys over the, the decades. And so he goes, look, I'll offer to take the boys to school every day. So he, took, and, mo- and a lot of the time picked them up too, but I'll take the boys to school every day. So he first, my two boys are six years apart. So he spent six years 
taking my son to high school and he'd have a five minute conversation with Ethan in the car every day and he'd just talk and Ethan would just sit there listening but dad sort of thought to himself um, five years of 40 40 weeks a a year uh, multiply that by five and you've got quite a few hours of me sitting with my grandson talking to him but I'm doing it in bite-sized pieces so that it doesn't overwhelm me and my father actually has an incredible relationship with his grandson because over time Ethan could say you know, ask him questions and see what he would have done with that and listen to his life experience and then he did the same thing with Elijah so he spent 12 years driving my two boys to school loved it both boys have a solid relationship with their grandmother and their grandfather but that's not something we would factor into our logic it's counterintuitive we wouldn't think of involving our grandparents in the bringing up of our children anymore, but it used to be just normal in the village that people would have all these different generations to talk to. You're in a field, I don't know, harvesting something or planting something, and you're talking to everyone on the row as you're all walking along the row. And contrary to modern expectations of how dynamics were set up in work life in, during the whole of Christendom, the 50s was an aberration really where there was this whole focus on a nuclear family with the man goes out to work and the woman stays home as a homemaker. That was actually a construct from companies trying to sell home goods to women like vacuum cleaners and, and washing machines and all this kind of stuff. Now there was a lot of home duties that women had uh, moving back through time but in villages men and women worked together in the house and the kids got brought up with the trade of the mother or the father. So the mother would be weaving and the father might be making shoes and the kids were involved in both those enterprises. So I think we've, we've kind of professionalised and industrialised our lives so much that just thinking about it differently might come up with new solutions. One last thing though, you did say, what are the shadows of that? Well, I think the shadows of both the intergenerational and the homogeneous unit principle is too much top-down culture generation, expecting the kids to grow up with my culture. So if I'm setting an intergenerational context, a lot of people today will say, the way to do good intergenerational ministry is have the kids come into church for the first couple of songs and a kid's talk and then go, my whole generation did that right through the 80s. That's not new. That's not intergenerational. And that didn't keep my 40 friends from school coming to church because, as Tim says, being on a bus doesn't mean you're having community. So just being in the service doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get to know everyone because being in the service can be a bit like going to the movies. When my friends and I used to go to the movies, we'd sit together and we didn't know everybody else who was sitting in the theatre. And when we'd be invited into church... And we didn't care. And when we invited into church, there was no expectation for me to have a relationship with anyone in that room. It was just experience their culture. So we got a top-down cultural expression that we were expected to pass on, and that made us feel a bit resentful because we knew our parents had rejected the cultural expression of their parents, but then they're expecting us to have it. So that top-down cultural transfer can be problematic left unchecked. And intergenerational ministry can just be another vehicle for that. But I like having what, we're trying to find a better name for it, but I like moderate intergenerational because you have some time together with the whole group, which needs to go beyond token, which is why we have breakfasts and dinners because that gets people talking. But we also need to have times where the kids and the teenagers are in their own spaces and creating their own culture and not just have a youth minister who's telling them what their culture is. I think we need to train our youth ministers to listen and actually bring the kids along with them so that the kids can actually help us to, to understand cultural change. So, 
Yeah, that's one of the shadows I think that we I'm seeing at the moment with intergenerational ministry. Yeah, I mean, one of the questions that uh, John brought up earlier was that how do you uh, try and almost mitigate against those unintended consequences of things mm. like the homogeneous unit principle. Uh, we had a quick chat on the phone yesterday, John, about the, you're kind of starting to do that with some of the kids that you teach. What do you do there? And then maybe we can expand that discussion to like yeah. how we could look at that, doing that as church as well. Yeah, um, as in with what I do in classes yeah. and, and evaluate. So just looking for evaluation tools. Um, and so there's one I use, which has got a pretty terrible name. It's called the Tower of Cards of Tech. <laughs> and um, it's a, some graphic designers come up with this thing and they Welcome all... Welcome to the Shock Absorber podcast. <laughs> 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 well, uh, yeah. So, I mean, and particularly I teach in a Christian school, so I wonder if anyone, <laughs> kids have gone home and told their parents and I haven't had a, a feedback yet. So, um, you know, but I mean, it, it's pretty mild in the sense... Unpack it for us, Ben. Yeah, well, let's, yeah. let's find out that there's no <laughs> let me, weirdness let me, going let on. Let me justify the it's existence not witchy or of something. this thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah so they're, there's just these cards and they've got these pretty graphics on them. But on the other side, they're just so like, each card's got a, um, like, a title so it's like the influencer or you know or you know the the, the zealot kind of thing and then on the back it's kind of like you know the question of the influencer you know what would happen with your your item your design if it was you know promoted to the masses um, or the other one, you know, like the Zell is like, what would happen in somebody who's absolutely sold out or what could happen in the, in the hands of the, the worst case scenario person kind of thing. So it's just a, it really, so it's a platform for asking kids to ask deeper questions about the, the possibilities of their design. So I suppose if these existed when someone was coming up with the highway, they would have answered the question, oh, maybe this will destroy the, the horse industry or destroy, mm. you, know, um, you know, Route 66 towns because would nobody will go yeah. them anymore. Mm. Um, maybe that could have, and they could have potentially considered their design a bit deeper. And so I suppose, um, you know, what we what I encourage us to do is to think about um, when we come up with these cultures that we want to develop is to to use activities like that to go, okay, what is the, the possible logical worst conclusion of this? Or what is, you know, what, what could happen if everyone in the entire world was told they had to adopt this model? Um, and I was talking to a mate last night um, about it and he was suggesting, and we didn't get quite deep into it, that, that potentially, you know, the, the homogeneous unit principle is really great in China where, you know, um, you know the, the expression of faith is so limited for what people can do and opening it up to lots of people could potentially open it up to so much more um, conflict or, or um, potential, um, you know, uh, people being taken away or things like that. I don't know, we didn't get to unpack it really. But, you know, I, I, I really think, though, what you guys have been chatting about <coughs> in terms of where we're at now as a society it's a, and, and, and in church cultures, it's a really great kind of thing to pursue. And sure, it'll have shadows, but at the moment, like, I mean, I, mean, I remember like being a, I don't know, like 23, 24-year-old guy in, in one of my churches and, and asking the pastor about, oh, why, why are we still doing that? And the answer was all on the lines of like, well, they're the older people, you know, we've got to, you know, respect them and do what they what they always want to do, like in the in the morning service. It's the top, and top down. Thing yeah, and in my mind, I'm sitting there thinking, hold on a second, like the logic of that just doesn't seem to stick. These are the people who are meant to be more faithful, more mature in their faith and understand, you know, and they, they should in some ways be the ones who are ready to go, no, 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 we need to do what's better for the younger people who are, you know, need the milk, not the meat. Um, and it always struck me as a strange thing. So having heard what you guys are talking about with intergenerational, I'm like, to me, that seems like it answers both of those things. Like, yeah, we want to pass culture down, but we also want to listen and, and yeah, kind of yeah. meld them Do together. Both, one. Yeah. 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 Because the homogeneous unit is just one. You, That's right. You either go to that service to have 
that culture or you go to that service to have that culture. Yeah. So, yeah. Which, and I loved, I mean, at my last church, I'd preach every now and again. And because when you're preaching, you had preached every service. You had four services in the day. So you had eight, 10, five, and seven. So it's a big day of, of mm. preaching the same thing at least. Um, but I mean, I loved it because I got to see my, you know, Christian aunties and uncles and grandmas and grandpas in the morning and then my brothers and sisters in the night. And I was like, oh, this would be awesome if everyone did this. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which, you know, is that's what intergenerational ministry would be is that I see all of those people in the day and it's that's what's funny bro about intergenerational ministry in morning services when people bring the kids in no one's noticing there's no young adults and teenagers but they're frothing over the intergenerational ministry because the kids are here it's like well where are the teenagers and the young adults and yeah that's that's what occurs to me with another shadow that we can we can do kind of half we can do it kind of half within our service that's already comfortable for us yeah i think we've got to get a bit more uncomfortable than that but come back to that uh comment i made about my parents like it's not like i'm suggesting everyone should uh live in the same house as their parents and not everybody can not everybody wants to and you know i've been super blessed having parents that are uh, really love their space we love our space so we don't impinge on each other but we kind of work together but uh, there's a, con- a Danish concept of housing called co-housing bec- and it's a secular idea but the idea is that everybody's living in these isolated bubbles of their own home and they're like little forts that people have made their own worlds in so what the co-housing movement did in in Denmark was say as well as making you know three houses let's put a common area for those people to do some stuff together in as well and there's lots of shadows to that as well but um if if you've got a central place where there's like the old-fashioned community centers of the past were places where people would gather so not everybody has to have a big screen tv in this model maybe there's one big screen tv and everybody can come and share it but the the downside of that is you've got to learn to share and you've got to learn that you can't watch this, the movie you want to watch every night. And then it goes back to the 70s when I was turning on the TV on a, on a Friday night to watch the movie because it was movie night back in the 70s and 80s. You didn't know what t- movie was going to come on and you just watched it even if you didn't like it. But man, you learned a lot about the world. And it was really interesting because someone in the family had liked it. So you'd like what they like and they'd like what you'd like. But nowadays, everyone not only gets their preheated meal and goes into their to go and sit down and eat at different times but they seem to be all going into their different rooms to eat it now so they can watch their own watch media on the internet. so our family we we built a table in the middle of our house um well we put a table in the middle of our house and we just said one non-negotiable in our family is dinner time every now and again someone's going to miss dinner but we're always going to sit down and eat dinner and i think just keeping some of those old traditions as well as moving with the times means that you can actually counter some of the negatives of technological change but yet not hide in some monastery bubble of 1950s christianity and you know i i I say to people sometimes like you don't watch doris day movies anymore do you listen to doris day music oh sometimes well why are we still singing songs from 400 years ago and having this really old expression of church like that's the only way to do church so it's about encouraging both generations to be a bit more flexible and maybe share the tv a bit so that we because in a way our churches have become the bedrooms where everyone goes off into the different service and has their own service but then they're missing something by not being together 
So, yeah, I might be bored sitting there listening to a hymn. I might not like it. The old people might think that the contemporary song's a bit loud and they don't really resonate with it. But they're looking over and seeing their spiritual grandchildren loving it and that puts a smile on their face that they've got grandchildren. Or you could just have all the songs you like and no grandchildren. Like I went to a concert this week at the Enmore in the city and saw a dinosaur junior. And there were some young people, but the majority of people were over 50 because the band was in its heyday in the 1990s. And, not, you know, the, the reality is that's what we do with church. It was like we go because we like that band or we like that song, but it's about us and it's about our individual choice and our, our consumption. So I think if we do focus a bit more on what's actually going to grow the kingdom, what's going to bring glory to God, and what can I do for the other? And if we can make that the first question we ask, sure, we're going to get older and tighter and sicker and we've got lots of problems with our families and we do need the comfort of hearing those old hymns. Or we, you know, and I, I get that. I get that people want to have you know, communion services that are traditional because that's what they've always had and it's comfortable and it's really reassuring. But at the same time, we need to be uncomfortable for the kingdom and we need to kind of get out of our own preferences into each, uh, you know, to be outward looking. And, and I think if we can practice that in the local church and young people and older people who are the, usually the same class and same ethnic background, if, if we can't even get young white kids to hang out with older white people, how are we going to bring, you know, mission to different people of different ethnic backgrounds like that's a big leap but if we can practice in the churches that we're in within the ethnic backgrounds we're in it if that's the case then maybe we can get used to being uncomfortable and it's okay to sit there in silence and be awkward and go i don't really know what to say i remember feeling something inside me died and i think it was the millennials that first saying it when people said oh that's awkward i thought oh no that's a bad word (laughs) and then when sometimes oh awkward you know kids will say something like that in other words that's out of bounds you've just broke the rules you can't do something that makes me feel awkward and i remember thinking oh no you've got to be awkward that's part of getting to know people you don't know very well because you'll say the wrong thing and then you'll learn from that and you'll not say the wrong thing the next time but if you're awkward and I'm never going to say anything that's going to make me feel awkward. And if you say something that makes me feel awkward, <laughs> then I'm not going to talk to you. Awesome. And that's kind of what I think is happening there too. It means, um, I think some of the things that you're going towards, Stu, also is like time spent in relationship with each other. And you can only get that through like lots of time together. Yeah, time. And, and we proximity need more time. as yeah. well. I think but homogeneous unit principle, one hour, 15 minutes for coffee. You said it. Of course parents aren't seeing each other. They're not even going to church every week. And when they do go to church, they're getting their kids and they're, oh, hi, it's good to see you. I'll see you next week. And that's why churches go, oh, well, we, we need to fix that by putting on Bible study and then men's nights and then this, then this. But then it's just taking people out of their families. Mm-hmm. So we, we kind of try and slowing down at the service. And, you know, I, we do make, you know, attempts to have some kind of men's and women's ministry sometimes and stuff. But for years we resisted a lot of that because we're like, why, why give people more things to go and do during the week when they're already super busy? Stay home with your kids, have dinner. Don't go to men's night. Get all the blokes together on a Sunday morning, spend another hour at church, talk to each other every week. And then if you want to, you know, get the, if there's some single people at church who feel like they need more community, get together and sit together at church on breakfast and encourage each other so that's kind of i mean it's not bad to have other things during the week but i think we've created a bit of a frankenstein 
and to community, take, I think. And even to take that family analogy makes me think of two things. And I know there's been a study that says that even if a family has dinner all together one night a week, right. they go, like, there's a lot better outcomes from yeah, that. Yeah. But really? then also... So even, there's studies on that, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. And yeah, even right. the... I remember we talked about the Blue Zones documentary a while ago. The which one? The Blue Zones oh, documentary yeah, yeah. where there's incentives within... Uh, in Singapore you get discounts on purchasing a place close to your grandparents yeah for example yeah. for those for those yeah. benefits that you're talking about see that's it you don't have to live with your grandparents you just but but there was this whole thing with the baby boomers oh i need to retire and get out of the city and i hear people my age going oh, i've got to get out of the city it's so busy well what to move away from your grandkids mate i'll i'll be living on a main road for the rest of my life if i can stay near my grandkids that's what <laughs> i want to help the kids bring up the kids if if they let me, you know, that that's what I want to do. I don't care about living on some beachside paradise down the south coast, you know, increasing the number of pills I'm taking month by month until I cark it. <laughs> I, I want to do that in heaven. I'd rather be <laughs> active and useful in this place rather than being, you know, I'm saying controversial things. That's, that's, a, that's fun. Oriented. There's an English um, kind of punk singer guy I like called Frank Turner mm. and uh, he's got I often excited it to people he's got this great line of song he's not a Christian guy but he says the song says you're not delivering a perfect body to the grave yeah and I'm like go. I feel like for Christians that's such a good thing it's like you yeah. know, you're not meant to live this great lifestyle now where you keep your body perfect you, you know and you walk into heaven like pristine you're kind of almost meant to walk in like the uh, the war wound is you know victim has got like half a leg off and mm. he's got you know he's lost an eye and whatever else because he's just spent himself entirely to get to mm. that's the goal and the, you know we go too far one way and the other in that don't we and sometimes a lot of pastors particularly have burnt out yeah. a lot of christians get burnt out but on the other end we can put so many boundaries up that we don't do anything and we're just awkward stay away from me mm. um i think but, but coming full circle in the podcast to to back to nick cave the unintended consequences thing i, I was just thinking as you're talking about the highway and that the thing about Nick Cave in the 80s, it's funny you guys saying, oh, he's kind of there in the ether. But in the 80s and 90s, he was there. Like everyone knew Nick Cave, whether you liked it or not. He was so influential in the music scene in Australia that if you didn't actually be friends with Nick Cave at one stage, you couldn't get your record played on radio stations. And it was interesting to me that as I, one of my favourite bands was a band called Radio Birdman who just sort of a flash in a pan in a way. They, they went from kind of late 70s to 1980 or something and bang, finished. Now, they're a punk band, so maybe surf punk had gone out of fashion when New Wave came in, possibly. But I read a, a biography, come back to biographies, musical biographies about Radio Birdman and Radio Birdman reckoned that one of the reasons they didn't make the big time was because they refused to take drugs. Because Nick Cave was had a stranglehold on the music scene in Melbourne and pretty much if you didn't take drugs in that scene, Nick Cave didn't want to know you. So here's this interesting full circle in the conversation that a band that was unreal, Birdman were unbelievable, but they chose not to hit the big time because they didn't want to take heroin and everyone was taking heroin who was making it to the big time but then Nick Cave, poor thing, he's lost his own son falling off a cliff to heroin and he yeah. looks back over his life of heroin addiction and goes... What a mistake. But back in the 80s, 
it looked like Birdman had made a mistake because, oh man, you could hit the big time if you get into that drug culture. So I'm sort of thinking as Christians, let's not worry too much if we're missing out on some things that the world has to offer if we stay true to ourselves and be Christian. And it was hilarious that Radio Birdman had a renaissance in the late 80s and early 90s when all the kids my age got back into them and found them because someone went to Red Eye Records in the city, found a Birdman record and went, oh my goodness, this is unbelievable. Where's this been? We never heard this on radio, never heard it on Triple J, never heard it on uh, Countdown as it was back then. But someone found it. We had record shops. So I think our churches are record shops. They are the custodians of our culture and they are the places where people can hear the tunes from the, from the past that are actually going to resonate again in the future, I think. And um, Birdman have had a resurgence and started touring again and they've become more popular in some ways now in their 70s than they were right back in the 1970s, which is really ironic because mm. there's a lot of kids that are younger going to those concerts, myself included, who's probably 20 years younger than them, so I kind of think that just because we might be not fashionable for a while doesn't mean we have to change and become like the culture or think that we have to be doing everything that everybody else does. Uh, I think it's time for a slow church movement and I think we just need to slow down, be ourselves, not legislate it, tell people they have to, but choose to. That's my invite thought. Invite people to it. Mm. Pardon? Invite people to come Yeah, along. get excited yeah. about it. Yeah. Like slow church is yeah. exciting. Yeah. It's really, really good. Just finally, just in a way of wrapping up the podcast, Tim, I thought it'd be good to give you a chance to talk about trying to look out for those unintended consequences. But I wonder if we can pass it back to the way to kind of workshop something that John spoke about was that there is perhaps a a drop-off at his church between around that 26, 27-year-old age group. How do we perhaps... um, just maybe take some suggestions about how what we could do about like maybe trying to mitigate against that. So, but like start with unintended consequences first. Anything else that piqued your interest when you were when we were talking about that? Uh, no, I couldn't think of anything else in particular about that, um, which is what makes them unintended, right? <laughs> 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 you, you're hoping for the you think uh, you can see clearly, and it's not too late. You can see the shadows. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I mean, one of the this is going the the bigger world of intergenerational ministry globally as um, people are trying to have these conversations um, some of the values of intergenerationality uh, is mutuality and, and reciprocal nature where you actually allow young people to speak back up into the generations um, and so yeah, the, I mean the, the shock absorber, the name of the podcast is, is explaining exactly that, it's the ability to allow young people to actually um, communicate upwards and help shape culture upwards into the established church. That's a whole value of it. And people are noticing this. People are really excited about this. Um, and there's, uh, again, some, some really interesting sociology around this as well, about letting young people shape culture. Um, one of the questions that has been asked, which this may be a shadow, but we're not, no one is really sure the answer yet, is, uh, is that kind of... Uh, mutual reciprocity that allows young people to speak up into culture and help shape culture um, inherently Western and what does that mean to translate that to other communities so um, and some of the people that are thinking about in generational ministries are coming from Eastern cultures mm. which have really strong hierarchies of uh, honor of elders and um, honor of those who um, are in power um, and young people their entire role in that social structure is to inherit and to listen um, and one of the the questions is well if we are telling eastern cultures well you need to upturn all of that 
in order to listen to young people, where's, where's the line there? Like, are we saying, oh, it would be, you know, in 30, 50, 100 years' time, is it going to be like, you know, when the, the uh, mission movement that came out of Britain and other people, other parts of Europe, came to, you know, Africa and they said, oh, you need to become Christians. Oh, and now that you're a Christian, you need to wear a three-piece suit because that's what Christians do. Christians <laughs> wear three-piece suits. Um, and they, uh, for all of the wonderful mission work they did and the beautiful ministry that happened and the explosion of the gospel all over um, Africa and Southeast Asia and other places, one of the things that was often missed was that they had blurred um, uh, a English cultural with Christian gospel. And they were too close to it to see the, where the distinction was. And that might be where this is happening as well. This, but, but also... There are those who are thinking, well, actually, no, we do think that this is biblical. That comes in that, you know, it comes back to that body of Christ, Romans 12, that if children are members of the church uh, and if they are part of the body, then it is right to allow them to play their part and to look out for the gifts that they will be bringing. And not exasperate them. Not exasperating them. Yeah, Jesus brings a child into the Because those Eastern cultures are non-Christian cultures. So are we going to perpetuate that based on a non-Christian culture? Yeah. Yeah. All of those dynamics, trying to think Difficult, isn't it? Yeah. It is, yeah. Could, could I say one quick thing? That's yeah. really fascinating, Tim, because the other thing I'd love to just throw in the mix is the Industrial Revolution has gone around the world, mm. and everywhere it goes, it has the same impact. So if you look at the Industrial Revolution in England, before the Industrial Revolution, our culture was the same as the culture in Africa, where people lived in villages. But after people moved to the cities because of the Industrial Revolution, that's the genie that's out of the bottle, and you can never put it back in. Um, we got asked to go to Papua New Guinea in the 2000s to help them to think through how to look after maybe doing some youth ministry with young people. There's an indigenous church in Papua New Guinea called the ECPNG, the Evangelical Church of Papua New Guinea, and their culture is the young people just do what they're told by the older people until the old person dies, and then you get a chance to be the elder, and then you hold on to power. And one of the problems they identified, Pastor Hengerbeer identified to me, was some of the bush pastors had less training in the Bible than the young people. And so they were passing on the gospel as best they could, but they didn't know as much as the young people. And he said, I'm trying to get them to listen to the young people as well because they've got all this great biblical knowledge that the bush pastors haven't been able to acquire yet because they had no education. So their kids go to Port Moresby to go get education, come back with a university degree. Sometimes they don't come back to the bush, they just stay in the city. But when kids do get education, even in the in uh, you know Lay and Tari and places like that, oh sorry Tari up in the in the mountains, through schooling they've they've got more education than the old people. But the old people hold on with this fierce grip. No, I'm in charge, and it, and it's not a helpful cultural dynamic, even though it is very Papua New Guinean. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, how do we start a youth ministry when the old people want to go to the youth ministry? So they start a youth group and all the old people come to the youth group because they don't want to miss out. And then when they go to the youth group, they just keep telling the kids what to do. And the kids just feel completely disempowered. The result was they're losing a generation because kids have iPhones. So you can be in an Eastern culture, but because of globalism and technology now, you can say we want to maintain our Eastern culture, but the kids don't want to. And they're going to the cities and they're getting into all the Western stuff and they're getting so much more choice so if they go back to an Eastern cultural context and the older people take their choice away from them, they just rebel and they leave. So I think it's a good question to ask because it's I think... It's what we see in, in migrant 
Yes. Like se- yeah. second generation. 100%. That's um, another good example. Is, I mean, we see this in Sydney. Yeah, we do. The second generation yeah. uh, migrant kids yeah, yeah. who are doing exactly that. Yeah, They're not, yeah. I mean, yes, globalism now hits everywhere. Yeah, yeah. But when you're, they've moved to a Western yep. uh, industrialised city. Yeah. So their children are going to schools and learning very different values to their parents' generation who came from whichever home yep. country. Uh, and that's what you see. You see the rebelling. You see them leaving. Yeah, yeah. It's very hard for migrant churches to hold on to that next generation. So it's good to have that cultural sensitivity. Yeah. But my fear is that the, the uh, diversity, equity, inclusion movement is saying let's not impose Western culture onto uh, other cultures. But there's technologies that are coming into those tech those cultures that are changing their cultures anyway. And, you know, kids in Africa are listening to, to rap music in America and wearing basketball clothes from their favourite you know basketball team so it's also a little bit patronizing if we go in there and say oh you know let's not you know let's try and learn how to um teach the gospel in a swahili cultural context i think that's a good thing to do but what is swahili cultural context anymore anyway so it's good to help them to keep some of their culture because we just lost all of ours pretty much uh, as white people but i think the longer exposure you have to the industrial revolution the less traditional culture your culture is going to have because the industrialization of the world is happening around us all the time and there's migrations from the cities sorry from the villages to the cities in china africa south america right across asia and that's not going to change so yeah i think maybe with it you know and the andy crouch stuff that you know every culture no culture is you know new creation no, and good so point. The yeah, is going yeah, to, yeah, yeah. There are going to be good things in every culture to affirm. Mm. There's going to be it's a really good point. In every culture, which the gospel will correct. Yeah, that's really good. That's Ian Hussey too, isn't it? But can I just say something on that too? It's interesting when we are trying to redress some of the excesses of the past in Australia with regard to um, the majority Australian community's ignorance of Aboriginal culture and how Aboriginal people have suffered a lot through colonisation. But it's interesting to see part of the response to try and fix that situation has become almost like a new romanticism. Yes. It's almost like, well, before white people came to Australia, Aboriginal people living in harmony, we came with our diseases and our guns and our war and our economics and our capitalism and we wrecked everything. But talking to Aboriginal people, they, they had wars with each other, they had problems within domestic situations within their... Because sin is sin all over mm. the world. So... You know, the Romantics used to kind of present this idea that pre-industrial culture was perfect and industrialization has wrecked it. And I think there's a bit of a sense of a re-emergence of that kind of idea, that if we can just get back to the, I mean, yeah, just get back to what it was like before the Industrial Revolution, we'll fix all the ills of our society. But um, yeah, I don't think it's as simple as that. So yeah, we that, take- that was a great point you raised, Tim. We, we take our year 11 students every year to Vanuatu and we have a sister school over there. It's very much not a mission trip where we go and just fix stuff. We partner with them. They come over to us as well. Um, but one of the conversations we always have with the kids before we go, our head of secondary talks about the idea that um, we, we sometimes we romanticise the, you know, the, the beautiful island where nothing's wrong and we're going to come in and ruin it. But the reality is in their culture, just like ours, sin infects everything. And we have to unpack. There is incredible parts of their culture that we love and we want to celebrate. And that's the good part, isn't it? That we need to embrace of this new cultural trend that we learn from other cultures, not just impose our culture. Yeah, Yeah. and and there's parts of our culture that's great that we can share, um, Mm. but then there's parts of our culture that we need to dissect as well. Mm. And I think if we do all that around 
under the word of God, then that gives us our reference point. And when we started our church, Matt Redmond drew a triangle. He said, he, and at the point of the triangle, he put the Bible. The left-hand point, he put tradition. And at the bottom, he put culture. And Matt had a really cool conversation where he said, we will take some traditions with us because they've been practices from past generations of Christians that have served them well and would continue to serve us well. There's some parts of culture that will embrace that are new, but whatever we embrace or reject will be in reference to what the Bible says. And we just do the best we can in each generation. Mm. And I think that idea of overcoming shadows is if you keep that triangle in your mind, that's when you see a shadow, you think, oh, okay, it's actually impossible not to have shadows in anything we do. So we're not saying the intergenerational ministry movement is perfect and it will last forever because i also think if we got back in a delorean and went back to the middle ages i'd probably be teaching that you have to have an individual faith it's not enough just to be part of your community and i might actually be spending most of my time doing a podcast on individual (laughs) christian living rather than (laughs) communal christian living but because our culture has gone so far into the individualism we need to speak into that and, but maybe we'll speak into it and it'll move so far that we repeat the mistake of the past and people think, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian because I'm in this group. And they need to be reminded again, actually, you're a Christian because you trust in Jesus with an individual. Yeah, so mm. I think that's kind, mm. kind of interesting. Can I give a quick-fire practical advice for John just before he needs to head off? Uh, what would you suggest that um, John and his leadership team at the church and even the congregation could maybe perhaps... I don't like the word prevent. I mean, maybe support the congregation to go, oh, you don't mm. need to leave, need to depart church when you're 26, 27. Mm. Or do you, you want to go first, Tim? Anything? Just quick fire, though. Quick fire. Uh, I'd want to diagnose the problem more uh, and find out why are those people leaving. Um, and I know that in a lot of places, actually, people leave because they can't afford to stay in an area. Yeah, it's uh, true. So it's another one. You, you might be missing the generations who are first homeowners because they can't afford to live where their parents grew up. Um, is that the reason or is that not the reason? And I, so I'd want to dig a little bit deeper and, and sort of investigate why, yeah, what, it, what is causing that. Um, yeah, I think that would be part of my mm. advice. Anything, what what do you reckon, John? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> uh, it's, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm glad that I'm not the one who has to solve the problem necessarily. I can weigh into it and have conversations with people. Um, I think uh, it's going to be interesting to see in the next five years, does our night church just continue to grow because those people stay rather than move on? But one of the things I know we're, we're currently seeing is that you've got people who have you know, gone from morning church as young people to night church and maybe they've moved around a bit. Then they've had kids and they're like, we, we don't want to change again. Yeah. But we can't sustain being here. Mm. Um, and so there's just that question around that of, of what do they do. But I, I think the, the bigger thing for us is not so much worrying so much about people leaving, but more that sense of the, yeah, that void that we've got in the other congregations because we've sent everyone up to night church who are flourishing there, but we're not experiencing the benefit of having them around um, as part of the, the whole body. Mm. And you got anything to add to sure? just on that point? I think I think the thing that I try and remind ourselves of is that whatever we've designed in the past needs to keep changing and not stay the same. Mm-hmm. So I think having a staff team and a leadership team that are always asking the question, what's the discipleship outcomes of this Christian ministry expression and what's the ministry outcome, a uh, mission outcome 
of this ministry expression is a good question to ask because then you're thinking, is it on mission? Yep, it is. Is it discipling people? Yeah, it is. But then there's people who are leaving. So what, what's missing in their discipleship? Often that helps me to target maybe some new things that can happen. The second thing I'd say is in order to change things, I always try and build a bridge to a new reality. And if the new reality doesn't work, come back to what you're doing. So I don't blow things up and then start again. I like to keep things running and then try new things until we work out what the next step is. Mm, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Well, uh, John, it's been wonderful having mm. you on the podcast. Thank uh-huh. you so much for coming on, making Thanks. the trip to come and record with us as well. Um, uh, we always say we just want to have a conversation about what we're doing, anything related to church and Christianity and discipleship, mission, uh, culture, all those things. And um, I think you've really contributed to that. So. Thank you very much for coming along. and um, Thanks for having we me. We really appreciate it. No, thank you. And, uh, of course, Tim, thank you. Thank you, Joel. And Stu, as always, thank you. Thank you, Joel. No, no problem. And uh, as always, oh, you can email me. If you, if you know John and want to bring a question that he's brought up <laughs> that's come up into your mind and you want to have it answered on the podcast, you email me at joel at shockersorbit.com.au and we will answer it on the podcast as long as it's appropriate. And... <laughs> <laughs> um, as always, we like to finish with a one way because uh, that is the only way to heaven. So we'll finish one with way. one way. I like one way.